The Falling Middle Cast is a spin-off series from the creators of Mars on Life. This series provides review and commentary of Barbara Ehrenreich's Fear of Falling, The Inner Life of the Middle Class. Since this series analyzes the text and provides a critique on class in America, this is not a comprehensive audiobook and follows all copyright claims. Now, back to the show. Last episode for this book, because there may be more. We shall see. But at the very least, this is the final episode of the Falling Middle cast focused on Fear of Falling by Barbara Ehrenreich. Sebastian, how do you feel now that the end is near and we are on the final chapter? Every turnabout has to come to an end eventually. Um, Unless it's Mulholland Drive. <laughs> I'm moving. Or is it? I very much am excited. I plan on bringing the full force of whatever arguments may surface uh, between lines here. And, you know, when, when you said you wanted me to read the last, the last little essay. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, for now, though, because you ended off the last chapter, we have here the beginning of chapter six, the next great shift. There is no rule that history must move in cycles, that a shift to the right must be matched by one to the left, or that in some numerological accounting, the 90s will resemble the 60s. Despite repeated announcements of, quote, the end of greed and increasingly testy calls for, quote, new values, the professional middle class remains, on the whole, committed to the pursuit of wealth, sycophantic toward those who have it, impatient with those who do not and uncertain about what, if anything, was left behind in the heat of the chase. Part of the problem is structural, which is the economist's way of saying that it's no one's fault. Clearly, things simply cost more, so much more that we are frequently invited to sympathize with the middle-class breadwinner who can no longer get by on upwards of $100,000 a year. As one reports, my wife and I are baby boomers in our mid-30s. We are both professionals with master's degrees. Our combined annual income this year will be about 115000 By any measure of income distribution, we are way up there in the top 5% of American families. Something is terribly wrong. The writer goes on to detail the current and future expenses of families like his own. Monthly mortgage payments of $4,500, commuting and childcare costs for the two-career couple, payments to private retirement funds, plus the prospect of college costs for the two-year-old that, quote, could exceed $100,000 annually. Ooh. It is hardly greed that impels a man to want the best education for his children or a comfortable home for them to grow up in. I agree. These costs are real. And since each family faces them alone without the possibility of exerting collective pressure, non-negotiable. Something indeed is terribly wrong when the once modest expectations of the middle class can be met only with what is a far from middling income 
But it is also true that the expectations of the professional middle class have become have been becoming somewhat more immodest over time. If the above baby boomer were a city dweller, he might have added the thoroughly, quote, necessary expenses of a summer house and private schools for the children and concluded that $200,000 or even more was barely sufficient to sustain a, quote, I'm going to say this twice, middle class lifestyle, middle class lifestyle. It truly is a matter of perspective here. And again, much of this expense can be counted as blamelessly structural. There is no way in this class to live next to the condensed squalor of the cities without access to safer spaces. The $8,000 a year nursery school, the $10,000 summer rental, the well-patrolled 500,000 co-op apartment. And finally, add those details of yuppie extravagance that must be deployed to signify one's social rank. And at some point, which in the professional middle class may long have since passed, these two become almost structural requirements. Not options, but socially mandated necessities, demanded by the pace of life and demanding, in turn, an even faster pace of work. And still, the end is not in sight. In the spring of 1987, the New York Times detailed the budget crunch of a young family earning $600,000 a year. And under these circumstances, the imagination contracts to fit the task at hand, getting ahead, staying abreast, earning enough. The, quote, best minds in the judgment of their college professors continue to spurn the more demanding disciplines for the speedier rewards of finance, banking, and corporate law. A narrow path is opened up, leading from the middle class directly to great wealth, and all those with quick minds and pointy elbows are, are crowding onto it. Increasingly, the professions such as medicine, engineering, and scientific research that require sustained concentration and the vaunted ability to, quote, defer gratification are left to lower status people, immigrants from the third world, women, even within the new class occupations that ought, if right wing theory is any guide, to harbor masses of the more liberal minded, a frantic repositioning is taking place. And at the other extreme, the growing intellectual proletariat of part-time faculty who commute from campus to campus to piece together a living, journalism still has its financially marginal freelance, uh, freelance writers and hardworking local newspaper reporters. But now it also has a growing cadre of celebrity pundits. Men like George Will, who move equally from print to television. From television to the corporate lecture circuit, commanding five-figure fees for a single appearance in the flesh. Mm -hmm. How prescient. The continued existence of the professional middle class as a class may eventually be in question. One chunk is moving up, perhaps to join en masse the corporate elite from whose hand it now securely feeds. The lawyer specializing in mergers and acquisitions, the professor with his own bioengineering firm, the celebrity commentator. These mingle now with heads of companies, even heads of state. The engineer the lawyer handling routine cases, the teacher of unmarketable subjects like history or English, these may find themselves increasingly in the social orbit of computer programmers, travel agents, and medical technicians. But until new lines are drawn, the hustle is on. Everywhere, the scent of money intoxicates and clouds the mind. I attended a meeting 
of a group, mostly professors by occupation, dedicated of encouraging to encouraging young people in the arts. When the question arose of whether the, to accept corporate sponsorship for a certain undertaking, there was many worried statements about, quote, compromise. For indeed, the corporation was seeking legitimation for a product that might well offend artistic sensibilities. Finally, someone rose to clarify the issue. The question is not whether we sell ourselves, he said, but whether we sell ourselves for a high enough price. Titters arose in honor not only of the sexual innuendo, innuendo, but of the larger resonance of this question. In the professional middle class, which one fought to secure the autonomy of its occupational redoubts, there is today no larger question than, what are we worth and who will buy? Mm -hmm. And when more is not enough, but only serves as a springboard to further excess, then we have entered a state Analogous to physical addiction, it does not matter that the more is often structurally decreed, that the costs of a decent way of living elude the frugal as well as the self-indulgent. The indiscriminate hysteria over drugs reflects that old anxiety at the heart of the middle class, the fear of falling, of losing control, of growing soft. Drugs, as an undifferentiated category, symbolizes the larger and thoroughly legal consumer culture with its addictive appeal and harsh consequences for those who cannot keep up or default on their debts it has become a cliche to say that this is an addictive society but the addiction most of us have most to fear is not promoted by a street corner dealer the entire market the expanding spectacle of consumer possibilities has us in its grip and because that is too large and nameless we turn our outrage towards something that is both less powerful and more concrete I'd say it's pretty less concrete because as much as I abhor the consequences of, say, drinking, smoking, it's easy to point a finger at cigarettes. It's difficult to point a finger at the tobacco industry. However, mm -hmm. I would say that it's definitely less concrete, though, than that, not more. And I argue that because... On a surface level, it's easy to simply say cigarettes are bad for you, stop smoking. Yeah. As being the answer, the immediate answer, you know, more concrete. Less concrete would be, you know, pointing your finger at the tobacco industry and say, hey, let's shut it all down. How? You know, that's where the, the waters kind of get a little murky there. Right. The fear of softening focuses most naturally on the young. The hardworking middle-class breadwinner has no reason to fear that his or her ambition will be blunted by a winter vacation or a mortgage on a second home, but the children may already be thoroughly numbed. Every week brings us news of their declining intellectual performance relative to the children of Japan, Korea, and Western Europe. And in the affluent suburbs, white children, descended from the ambitious immigrants of another era, are inexorably surpassed by the children of fresh immigrants from Southern and Pacific Asia. The white children compete through consumption, clothes, cars, the splendor of the, quote, Sweet 16 party. Only the more recent arrivals have the stamina to compete for grades. Sensing the problem, anxious parents float proposals to require uniforms in the public schools, as if discipline could be acquired by physical contact. But the only hope... The only white hope, that is, may be that the immigrants will, in a generation or two, desist 
from striving and join the rest of the sleepwalkers in the mall. Hmm. As anxiety over consumption grows, so too, no doubt, will the volume of voices demanding a return to traditional values and their pedagogical equivalent, basics. The clamor for tradition is not, as many seem to think, part of an overdue pendular swing away from the hollow modernism of disposable loyalties, short attention spans, and easy comforts. Although on paper, I think that's what most pundits on the internet would like to believe. You know, oh, yeah, going back to tradition. Oh, it'll work. It worked before. You know, argument ended. <laughs> By swinging it you know, like a pendulum to the other side and thinking, oh, well, that's outright the solution. Yeah. No, <laughs> you're just being contrarian. Traditional values are merely a counterpoint to modernism, perhaps an inevitable feature of it. Evergreen, the, air quote. Yeah, the broader the path, <laughs> the broader the path to what appears to be laxity and surrender, the louder the calls for discipline and struggle, i.e. strong men, weak men, uh, how's the saying go strong men make good time uh weak men make strong time uh ooga booga for the new class is not as the intellectuals of the right have liked to think the locus or agent of hedonism it is the locus of the most acute conflict over hedonism the nexus of the most pronounced tension between modernism and tradition consumerism and self-discipline the intellectuals of the right as usual forgot themselves so there is no guarantee that anxiety over affluence and consumption will lead once again to a rebirth of liberalism certainly at the more fortunate moneyed end of the professional middle class where family incomes surpass those of over 80 or even 90 percent of americans there is little impetus for a leftward shift as the urban middle class withdraws from public spaces and services schools parks mass transportation it also withdraws political support for public spending designed to benefit the community as a whole. Mm -hmm. Couples who send their children to private school commute to work by taxi and find their clean air at Aspen or Cancun will understandably prefer a tax cut to an expansion of government spending. Which is how you get a bunch of Reagan voters to vote for Hillary Clinton or Joe Biden. They may vote for a liberal Democrat at the local level, but favor conservatives at the centers of national power. Also, I will say probably at their own uh, beliefs, silent beliefs. They're not going to say that at their local town hall meeting. Well, it depends on the issue and it depends on the candidate. If you've got a Ted Cruz type as your local congressman or city councilor, then you're going to look at them and think, well, what's your tax policy? And if their tax policy is to wax nostalgic of the eighties, yeah, that's going to pull some people in, but other people are going to be like, okay, but what are you actually going to do about it? Because based on recent tactics by Republican administrations, it is quite literally the exact same spending that democratic presidents get bemoaned for but it's considered okay because a it's a republican doing it but more importantly b it's for the interest of something like national security or border walls or some made-up boogeyman that defines or defends rather excess spending yeah. 
but also See. like inevitably results in more taxes, even though they run on less taxes. A right. la George H. W. Bush, read my lips. I would love to agree, except for the fat for the past five chapters, I've literally only heard the words self-indulgence and self-interests. <laughs> right, but that's you know, so right exactly and elite level well middle mm. class avoiding the proletarianization of the middle class level yeah right so as much as i would love to believe that us humans are capable of something more and looking out for each other you caught me at a, a kind of a jaded impasse here because welcome to my world yeah, really i know how's it feel to be you well hey it's always a jaded impasse, and then, you know, I read interviews by Mike Davis before he died, and I'm like, oh, damn. It doesn't get still, better? There is still reason to yeah. believe in this stuff. Despite all, all the black coldness, yeah. there is still reason to give a damn. At all levels, political allegiance is increasingly determined by class. As oh. Thomas Byrne Edsall of the Washington Post reports, the Democratic Party now finds its stronghold in the lower two-thirds of the income distribution, while eh. Republican loyalty ascends straightforwardly as a function of wealth. Eh. The liberal oh, elites yeah, true. The liberal elites and quote limousine liberals of right-wing populist rhetoric are now, unfortunately, almost as rare as Republicans on the welfare rolls. Meanwhile, class polarization continues and develops a perverse self-reinforcing dynamic of its own see i'm not i'm not convinced that the statement it takes a village is even existing in the eyes of those with a semblance of money and thinking that they know how to spend it no they're going right. to go for their self-interests they're going to utilize that financial leverage to pursue their own political self-interests and i don't give a fuck how you spin it or pull it out of your ass as if oh it's for the fellow man as the professional middle class withdraws from public services, those services lose their most adamant advocates and critics. The schools deteriorate into holding bins. The parks are abandoned to the purveyors of drugs. Public hospitals, long since deserted by the middle class, regress to their ancient function of concealing the homeless, the disturbed, and the contagiously ill from public view. As the public sector declines, starved of funds, and preyed on by corrupt municipal governments, <laughs> so too do the opportunities available to the poor and the working class. The elaborate educational barriers to the professions are hardly necessary when huge numbers of potential aspirants can barely read above the third grade level. But if the middle class can no longer see the abandoned poor, the poor can still see them. Today, television, the great enforcer of emulation, <laughs> oh, who just wait till the internet, brings the most decrepit ghetto dwellings intimate glimpses into the lifestyles of the rich and famous, not to mention the merely affluent. Studying the televised array of products and comforts available, seemingly to everyone else, the poor became, become more dangerous. There are no models in the mainstream media suggesting that anything less than middle-class affluence might be an honorable and dignified condition, nor is there any reason why corporate advertisers should promote such a subversive possibility if young african-american men in the ghettos as well as many white ones in the suburbs seem to prefer the underground economy of drugs and crime and temporary hustles to the drudgery of steady work at the minimum wage they have at least been well educated as consumers and of course as the poor become dangerous addicted short-tempered and diseased the middle class withdraws still further from contact Better to close the park 
as some affluent lower Manhattanites have argued, than risk mingling with those who have no other space in which to sleep or pass the time. Hmm. Better to block off public streets, as some Miami neighborhoods have concluded, than allow free passage to the down and out. Even our city's about as dumb as the thing in L.A. about, you know, oh, we can't have people in parks past a certain time because, God forbid, they come together and share ideas. Ooh, Hmm. really? Really? Hmm. Even our city streets are less likely than in the past to offer a promiscuous mingling of others. Suburban malls have drained downtown shopping areas and left them to the poor. The new urban skywalks lift the white-collar population into a well into a weatherproof world of their own leaving the streets to the overlapping categories of the poor blue-collar workers and people of color and the more the poor are cut off or abandoned the less they are capable of inspiring sympathy or even simple human interest the professional middle class was born with the delusion that it stood outside of the class struggle it doesn't Waged then between the workers and the robber barons as neutral arbiters and experts. They aren't. But at least that delusion carried with it a sense of responsibility to mediate, to plan, to compensate, in other words, for the reckless short-sightedness of the moneyed class. You'd think that hindsight is twenty-twenty with these individuals. It isn't. Today, no such sense of mission animates the middle class. It has, in large numbers, joined the problem. Uh, We need a revival of conscience and responsibility in the middle class. But from what ground is it likely to spring? What crisis might inspire it? What exhorations would have the power to call it forth? Alas, the questions have a tiresome, hectoring tone. Even the words conscience and responsibility begin to grate, suggesting only a slight improvement on the, quote, traditional values of conservative cant, especially self-denial. Guilt is not a fruitful basis for political renewal, any more than moral superiority, which is often only the mirror image of guilt. The student left of the 60s, which is the most recent example we have of a largely middle-class movement of conscience, foundered between moral superiority and guilt. Its early years of expansion and optimism were tainted, too often, with an overweening sense of superiority toward those middle Americans who refused to confront, as we used to say, their racism and related failings. I feel as if it's more of a statement. What's the statement that in seeing someone else's quote-unquote discrepancies, Mm -hmm. it's really just a mirror image of of you what's that statement again not looking into a mirror but it's sort of the argument that i have that i hear people saying it's just such a tone-deaf argument of like oh such and such is like a racist thing oh you see race that makes you the racist kind of thing it's kind of of that same vein where i'm seeing here that someone having this this moral superiority and guilt And then it says here, it's early years of expansion and optimism. Yeah, an overweening sense of superiority toward those, quote, middle Americans who refuse to confront, as we used to say, their racism and related failings. It almost makes me wonder if the person looking in on those middle Americans, they're seeing their own shortcomings. You know, they don't want to be like them when in actuality, they probably have more in common with them than they'd like to believe. Well, 
Um, so they're outright painting middle Americans as racist and quote failures. Well, it, it's also. But why are they doing that because of their own inadequacies and they have to and they see themselves in them. Right. As a as something that they don't want to confront or would they rather scapegoat middle Americans, point them out and bastardize them and basically claim that moral superiority as a result saying, well, I'm never going to be like them when in actuality they share more in common. It's the latter, but I don't think it's necessarily sharing anything in common. If anything, it's that idea that you can have these college-educated radicals that look to, that basically look to middle America and think, oh, okay, I'm not you, even though I am, and therefore you're ignorant because you're not like me. You don't have my background and education and whatnot, and... The reality of it all is is that, no, you should have solidarity with those individuals because, guess what, Joe College, you mm -hmm. do have the same background as them. You may think of yourself as smarter and better, but it doesn't mean you actually are smarter and better. If anything, it just, again, goes to show that you're trying to bourgeoisify yourself when, in actuality... You are becoming just as much a part of the proletariat within the middle class as the middle class is proletariat. Like, you are... And again, the whole idea of this book is that, you know, the whole idea of, of leaving whatever background you come from so that you can become middle class or, to Barbara's point, professional middle class, it's the fact that that in a... That idea that in of itself of being middle class is becoming proletarianized it begs the question of why don't you humble yourself right. so that you can not only lift yourself but also lift everyone around you within the middle class so that you are not so much vilified by an elite or by a one percent or whatever you might want to call it mm -hmm. um it just goes to show that you did have a body of that student you know, resistance, student left, whatever it may be, that did sort of look at, you know, other parts of the movements, or rather, sorry, that looked at other movements within the 60s and thought, well, they're not really up to our level, or they're not really understanding the situation, when reality is, no, they're all focused on the same issue, they're just looking at it from a different light. For example, if you're a student radical that thinks of yourself as a modern-day... I don't know, Trotskyist, it would behoove you to ally yourself with the pro-black civil rights activists in your area. At the end of the day, you are fighting for the same thing, but it goes to show that you can have strength in numbers rather than continue to discriminate and, you know, arguably uh, segregate yourself when you... Re when no, you shouldn't be allies with those very people that are looking for equality for themselves. You want equality, too, from a class standpoint? Take the side of the victim. Take the side of the oppressed. Don't think mm. of yourself as better. Don't think of yourself as, ooh, I'm educated, ooh. No, humble yourself. And if you can't humble yourself, then there's a problem, and there's a likelihood you're going to wind up being, uh, <laughs> being a uh, you know, Democratic candidate for some office, maybe president. Mm. Is that good for you? Eh, 
depends on when you run. Yeah. You know, as you would say, read the room. Hmm. I know that was then, a long, very long-winded yeah. answer, but it, it, believe uh -huh. me, it, it's it's very complicated because, again, a lot of what came out of the 60s gave us a lot of different results that arguably none of which really led to egalitarian progress, shall we say. Then, at the end of the 60s, came the discovery of the working class and the left's subsequent discovery of its own all-too-elite position in the scheme of things. The student left woke up abruptly to the fact that it was not working class, not third world, and hence had no place in the canonical theories of revolution. There we go. The movement was only, as Columbia student leader Mark Rudd once put it in a movement of perfect self-loathing, a weird pile of liberal shit. A feud of vanguard organizations claiming a direct affinity with the people, and most to their neglected studies and careers. The people. More recently, the right's attacks on the liberal elite have deepened the paralysis of middle-class conscience. One does not have to buy the entire theory of a new class conspiracy to find in it the grain of a disturbing truth. Middle-class-led reform movements from the progressive era to the war on poverty have been marred by an elitist distance from the would-be beneficiaries of reform. <gasps> Someone pulling the strings. Hmm. I hope I don't get sniped on sight. They were not intended to promote a vision of mass participation, leading to change from the bottom up, but at worst have exemplified Daniel Patrick Moynihan's notion of the, quote, professionalization of reform. Itself an echo of progressive era calls for reform led by the, quote unquote, experts. It is easy to conclude in guilt and perhaps relief that the professional middle class has no place in social change. Well, I guess we're done here. No, we still got a little bit left. That is too driven by its own ambitions, too compromised by its own elite status, and too removed from those whose sufferings cry out most loudly for redress. As a thoughtful and liberally oriented young woman uh, wrote to me recently in considerable anguish, I know what is important to me morally, but I don't know if there is a role for white woman from the upper middle class. Other people question my motives, and sometimes I do too. If there is to be a revival of conscience, it will have to be grounded in a deeper shift. In consciousness, or collectively, class consciousness. This book has traced a prior shift in consciousness. From the naive solipsism of the middle class in the 50s to the thoroughly pessimistic self-assessment that accompanied the conservative mood of the 80s. And in this assessment, the professional middle class is an elite that is both estranged from the majority of, quote, ordinary people and menaced internally by hedonism and self-indulgence. Its goals are suspect, its generosity poisoned. Clearly, the next great shift demands a second look from within this class at who we are and what we want. Power as the right charges, wealth as the yuppie strategy suggests. Or are there other needs repressed in the prevailing conservatism, which might be which might begin to connect us with the lost, quote, others of the lower classes? Thoughts? None. Keep going. Okay. Everything that has been stated here, I've echoed ad nauseum. And, you know, what do you want me to say other than just it's a fucking hangman's gambit at this point? It's Sisyphus and the boulder, dude. Like, what do you want me to say? Hate to sound oh. black-pilled, but 
No, you're, you're sounding like an existentialist now. What like, do you What do you want me to say ooh. to those who assume it's a straight shot to success at this point? Mm-hmm. Who aspire for any semblance of class mobility? By definition, on paper, the opportunities are out there, but because of so much class, financial, and socio-political existentialism that, oh, yeah, there's a chance to move up. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this, and I, I know this might be the most loaded question I've probably ever asked you, but considering his impact on history and considering his thoughts and feelings on class, on culture, on history especially, and also on materialism, and, and I know this is also loaded from the standpoint of I'm not, like, the biggest reader of his, but certainly his thought process has pervaded so many people that I've read from and has also definitely influenced my style of thinking. Um, would you go so far as to say this? And obviously I'm not saying you're going to be... I'm not saying either of us are an expert on this, so I, I'm taking this as just... A freewheeling question um but would you go so far as to call someone like karl marx a, uh somebody that's blackpilled as someone who could definitely see the faults of social classes and mm. advocating for the outright just abolishment of them to have an equal playing field i mean i have an answer but what's well, yours i certainly think that individuals whether they actually be historical figures or not are men and women of their times and they see an out an outright issue of inequality of social inequality i look at that as i look at someone like marx as yet another individual posing a solution for the times that he lived in hmm. and whether or not it it spiraled into a well whether or not it did it, <laughs> It spiraled into a, um, you know, a brand of class consciousness that is butting heads with the current system that we have to this day. Yeah. It is, it's definitely something to consider when arguing ad nauseum to those who were just so hell bent on, you know, indetermination of why capitalism and conservatism works. Right, and it's not to do so, mind you. It's not to do so for the sole fact of saying that one is outright better than the other because, mm. yeah, oh, wow. The, hey, guess what? If you type in on the internet uh, conservatism or, or capitalism versus communism, you're going to get a couple arguments. Um, arguments ranging probably in the tens of millions from outdated Yahoo forum posts to whatever the fuck Vosh is arguing about this week, okay? It's been going on for quite a while, all right? Well, it even it even precedes Marx. Of, That's what's funny about and, it. And it even precedes Marx. So, point blank, I do believe that for as long as humans have existed on this earth, we are seeking methods and manners to which we can achieve a higher sense of, of living in the times that we are currently living in. Okay. And for the justification of, say doing so at the expense of the proletariat, and I would even go so far as to doing it at the expense of basic human decency, such as the advent of slavery, there will be someone 
on the justification clause shaking their stick as to determining why this is okay why inequality needs to exist for the betterment of xyz and really if they if they really want to dupe us the betterment of us all because they offer that key to success mind you they don't simply put it as hey we're living in an entirely bastardized tijuana back alley abortion of a socioeconomic structure and there's nothing you can do about it here Mm. are the keys to success here's hard work yeah here's the tenacity and the discipline to make it ahead where even you a frail individual of indeterminate color race background or orientation can make it too yeah they just don't bother to hand you a magnifying class magnifying glass to uh look at the size 0.25 font of the uh inequality roadblocks that uh that stand in your way they don't tell you what you're up against no no and here i am speaking as like you a white cisgendered male though at the advocation of minorities gaining semblance in society that i see it i see it in business i see others of different cultural backgrounds trying to make something of themselves and elevate their social status and not doing it for the sole purpose of who they are uncontrollable protected factors right so what happens then i'm rolling a ball up a hill I'm wondering when the hill ends and levels out so that I can at least catch my breath, but I can't catch my breath. Based on what you said, Marx was definitely a product of his time and therefore deliberated on what he saw mm-hmm. in his time. Am I am I getting that right in terms of your yes. answer? Okay. In terms of the question itself of, you know, was he blackpilled when he developed all these ideas and thoughts? I certainly do not think so i certainly and i and nor do i think oh it's it's a development of i mean well okay it's certainly a development of the time that he lived in however what he proposed and this is based on how others have interpreted it for me it's basically the idea that what he saw applies no matter what time period it may be in whether it's the 18 you know, the mid-19th century, or whether it's the decades after his death, you know, the the age of the Soviet Union, or whether it's now. Like, at the end of the day, it does not matter where it may apply to, it simply applies. Mm -hmm. And so, therefore, his ideas were not only poignant, but they were also, not to sound too jaded but evergreen you know it's basically Mm -hmm. ideas that i think they apply in his age they apply in our age they apply in the ages in which his beliefs and thoughts were therefore bastardized i would argue in terms of the soviet union in terms of china in terms of north korea um but also at the same time they, they they present themselves in a way that offer more consideration depending on who is considering them and depending on what time period they are being considered i.e. now because one could argue that a lot of his ideas matter in terms of the ongoing and I would argue growing labor movement today 
as well as any push for meaningful change at the political level, the likes of which we've only seen increase since 2015 and really didn't matter, especially at the time that Fear of Falling was written from what Barbara could see because it was not, it was not applicable. Like even, even with the likes of Jesse Jackson's campaign for the presidency, even though he did attract a lot of those voters that probably one day would have been Bernie voters, um, he wasn't speaking the same way that somebody like Bernie was. We only have, uh, what now? Oh my, 14 pages. Get it off. Discovering the true elite. A good place to start is with the unfinished business of class discovery. In this book, we have traced the discovery of the poor, the discovery of the working class, and finally, the discovery of the new class. That partial self-discovery of the professional middle class as a whole. In all this, one class had eluded detection as a class, and that is the rich. Or more narrowly, the corporate elite. Their discovery is crucial, for the rich are the genuine elite, relative to whom even the middle class is only another lower class. If the conservative shift was based on a middle class awareness of itself as an elite, then it was also based on an unwillingness to acknowledge where power really lies. The rich, as individuals, are never far from view. They are a cherished part of the entertainment spectacle, their loves, their failed ma uh, marriages, and their family strains reassuring us that money does not bring happiness only the wherewithal, perhaps, to endure its absence. In the 80s, as the young of the middle class swarmed into the service of the corporate elite, the media amplified its fawning coverage of the upper class. Vanity Fair, which started out with mild intellectual aspirations, and M, a magazine of male fashion, bring us gossip from the polo fields, photos of the latest debutantes, and reports on the romances of local royalty, such as Princess Radzawil, and on the tastes of billionaire entrepreneurs led by the sleek and spendthrift, uh, spendthrift Trumps. I will repeat that. On the tastes of billionaire entrepreneurs led by the sleek and spendthrift Trumps. In the media, the rich are legitimated, enthroned almost, by their association with the remnants of European aristocracy and, in the West, the homegrown aristocracy of Hollywood. If there is any connection between the gross excrescence of wealth and the indisputable spread of pauperism, it is discreetly left in mystery. In the theories of the right, which still suffuse the mainstream way of seeing things, the rich are not the shallow people we see in magazines, eagerly opening their dra uh, drawing rooms and formal parties to the stairs of plainer folks. Usually, they are not present at all having been displaced by the craftier and more powerful new class. Or they are folded into the working class as socially responsible producers. Middle Americans, like everyone else, only somehow larger. Occasionally they are sanctified, as in George Gilder's writings, as remote and kindly patriarchs whose gift of capital seeps down to nourish the rest of us. But capitalists no longer serve as stewards of social wealth, bravely risking, wisely investing, all for the greater good, if indeed they ever did. Consider the sad denouement of Reaganomics. 
Billions were redistributed upward through tax cuts and other fondly permissive policies. Regulatory, uh, excuse me, regulatory relaxation, for example, and the official abandonment of wage-earning workers. And since the new jobs generated by the economy are mostly low-paid and often part-time, the median income for a family of four remains stuck, Is it as it had been for years, just below the truly modest sum of $30,000 a year. What happened to the immense largesse made available by conservative policies to the rich? Some small part financed the visible extravagance of the 80s, aptly represented by Malcolm Forbes's capitalist cookies, Trump's helicopters, and Nancy Reagan's borrowed gowns. Another smallish part was invested, if the word applies, in hoardable items such as art, but most went to fuel the speculative binge on Wall Street. The corporate takeovers, mergers and acquisitions, leverage buyouts uh, that have made America, as some economists put it, a casino society. None of these speculative activities generates new wealth, new jobs, except for legions of corporate lawyers, new products, or new technology. They are games of chance, carried on at an unprecedented scale, whose only tangible result is a reshuffling of existing wealth and power among a tiny group of players. The leading players, who are also the leading capitalists of our day, are the investment bankers, some of whom earn tens of millions a year and trade in companies with assets exceeding the wealth of many nations. Huh, this guy. As economist Robert B. Reich observes, Rarely have so few earned so much for doing so little. Never have so few exercised such power over how the slices of the American pie are rearranged. How'd that cabinet position go? In the speculative frenzy that has taken the place of industrial capitalism, it is the corporate financial elite that most clearly exhibits the supposed defects of the poor. Present time orientation and the incapacity to defer gratification. Foreign financiers and investors, who seem increasingly to serve as the superego of U.S. capitalism, routinely criticize the American business community for its unwillingness to think beyond the next quarter's profits. Its refusal, for example, to invest in the research and plant modernization that might lead to profits in the longer term. Our corporate elite has been entrusted with an unseemly share of the nation's wealth, wealth that ultimately represents the labor of workers, ingenuity of scientists and technicians, the vanishing abundance of natural resources, and they are gambling it away. If there is one clear lesson of, Re of Reaganomics, it is that the rich cannot be trusted with money. Class polarization invites class conflict. I'll repeat, class polarization invites class conflict. The media are unlikely to launch a critical discovery of the class that sponsors them, but scattered articles, the occasional populist uh, politician of the left, a few recent books, these announce America's accelerating decline toward a plutocracy ruled by the whim and greedy impulse of the few. The discovery of the rich, and among them the truly powerful, should have an immediate salutary effect. Good Lord. Uh, salutary effect on the professional middle class. Even its most privileged members find themselves blocked by higher powers. Hmm. The magazine editor must bow occasionally to the financial power of the publisher or the advertisers. The tenured faculty finds its autonomy checked by the aggregated wealth of the board of trustees. 
Whatever power can be won through skill, ambition, and strength of will can ultimately be outweighed by the force of capital. I now leave the rest of the book to you. Rediscovering the Others If the rich as a class can be discovered, it may also be possible for the middle class to rediscover the lower classes. Not as alien others, or even as objects of liberal sympathy, but as allies in a struggle to curb the inordinate and growing power of wealth. And this is, in fact, almost the defining dream of the American left, that discontented members of the middle class might join the working class majority in a political effort to redistribute both power and wealth downward to those who need them most. And as the dream unfolds into the future, class ceases to be a meaningful dimension of human variety. The steep gradients of wealth and poverty, power and helplessness are abolished, and genuine democracy can take root at last in level ground. For the point of discussing class is ultimately to abolish it. Tax the rich and enrich the poor until both groups are absorbed into some broad and truly universal middle class. The details are subject to debate. You can emphasize better jobs and wages, or you can offer a guaranteed income that circumvents the labor market, or you can emphasize services such as education, health care, housing, child care that improve the lives of everyone and widen the opportunities of those in need. Probably all of these things should be done in some considered combination until America truly begins to resemble what it once believed itself to be. A classless, even-tempered society where the most pressing problems have to do with the, quote, quality of life rather than the quantity of human misery. But it is far easier to sketch the alliances required for such an undertaking than to create them in the flesh, easier to see the, quote, others as distant constituencies, the building blocks of strategic fantasy rather than as potential colleagues and leaders. Even the middle-class left, where the spirit is most willing, has an uneven record of reaching out across the lines of class. Left and right, we are still locked in by a middle-class culture that is almost wholly insular, self-referential, and its own way, parochial. We seldom see the others except as projections of our own anxieties or instruments of our ambitions, and even when seeing them as victims, cases, or exemplars of some archaic virtue, seldom here. Overcoming stereotypes is perhaps the easiest step, for stereotypes have only to be identified, have only to be identified to be disarmed as knowledge. In the last few years, for example, news of the feminization of poverty and of the widespread existence of the quote working poor has sapped the power of some of the most noxious and implicitly racist images of the poor. The hard part is to move beyond stereotypes to an understanding that the others are as diverse and individual as one's own kind, and also in ways that may deserve respect as well as worry, distinctly different. Again, a shift in consciousness is required, an effort of intellect and imagination. Many factors conspire to isolate the classes and keep the middle class from noticing the others, much less addressing them as fellow citizens. The physical segregation of the classes guarantees that we will move and usually live in separate spaces. Our fragmented welfare state, which includes welfare for the poor and an array of tax breaks for the middle class, keeps us from finding common ground in economic issues. In the media, the decline of labor coverage ensures that 
no one will know of the working class's moments of heroism or defeat. And even when they are in our presence, we tend to screen out the unimportant people, the busboys, messengers, nurses, aides, ticket agents, and secretaries. Nor do we usually see the daily efforts and achievements of the others. Consider, as a brief case study in class insularity, the long-standing middle-class preoccupation with commodities as marks of social status. In the currently fashionable intellectual approach, commodities are signifiers in a language of status, telling us, for example, who is worth knowing and who may be safely neglected. But this notion as it stands is itself limited and class-bound. If all that things signify is degrees of rank, then the language of commodities becomes a conversation among the already privileged who are alone prepared to decode the shadings of taste represented by each consumer option and brand name. If things speak only of status, then they speak only to the status conscious, and the only news they bring us they bring is of arrogance and degrees of wealth. It is possible, however, to read things another way, not only as statements about the status of their owners, but as the congealed labor as invisible others. Whatever it is, someone manufactured it, packed it, trucked it to market, and stood behind a counter until it was sold. The gourmet takeout food speaks of immigrant workers chopping food in a sweltering kitchen. The towering condominium building speaks of lives risked at high altitude, and everything speaks of the tense solitude of the over-the-road truck driver. Learning to read things this way is a step to breaking out the middle class's own lonely isolation. A kind of language barrier divides the classes. From the vantage point of the professional middle class, those below do not speak clearly or intelligibly or interestingly. Hence, all, hence the all-too-common unconsciously patronizing judgment that a particular representative of the poor or the working class is, quote, articulate, implying that the rest are not. Stereotypes of verbally deprived workers come to mind. Archie Bunker with his malaprisms, Ed Norton braying dumbly on the honeymooners. Not that Ed Norton, I should just point out. It is the middle class that is speaking the strange language, something sociologist Alvin Goldner called critical discourse. This is the language of the academy and also of bureaucracy. And in his analysis, it defines the professional middle class as a speech community. It is distinguished, above all, by its impersonal and seemingly universal tone. And within critical discourse, Goldner writes, persons and their social positions must not be visible in their speech. Speech becomes impersonal. Speakers hide behind their speech. Speech seems to be disembodied, decontextualized, and self-grounded. And relative to the vernacular, critical discourse operates at a high level of abstraction, always seeking to absorb the particular into the general, the personal into the, imp into the impersonal. That is its strength. Meanwhile, even a truly limited idea, when expressed in the impersonal mode common to the middle class, becomes grander than the utterance of an individual person, larger in implication, more consequential. In the longer term, we need a critique of critical discourse itself. Is there a way to re-embody the middle class's impersonal mode of discourse so that it no longer serves to conceal the individual and variable speaker? For we may need to find ourselves in the language of abstraction if we are ever to find the others in the language of daily life. And finding the others, not as aliens, not as projections of inner fear, 
is essential to the revival of middle-class conscience. Here we go. What does... And also what you've been looking for this whole time. (laughs) What does the professional middle class have to gain, or perhaps to lose, in a more egalitarian future? The problem with middle-class liberalism, perhaps the worst problem, was that it never asked the question. It assumed that American affluence was sufficient to embrace all those in poverty, without any loss to those who were not. And it assumed that any gains to the middle class itself would be purely spiritual, leaving the way open for right-wing theories of the liberal elite's real motives and agenda. Compared to the world as seen by middle-class intellectuals at mid-century, ours is a world of scarcity. No one imagines that affluence is a widespread condition, much less a social problem. No one any longer believes that poverty can be abolished painlessly without an effort at downward redistribution, not in the United States and certainly not in the world as a whole. Even economic growth, that venerable liberal alternative to redistribution, has reached the limits of the Earth's environment and must sooner rather than later come to a stop. And surely, if middle class is to be defined by incomes available now to 5% or less of the American population, then few can hope to attain that once quite ordinary condition. But there is one thing that should not be scarce. That should in fact increase, and that is good and pleasurable and decent work. The work of caring, healing, building, teaching, planning, and learning. The pride of the professions that define the middle class is that they still contain and represent such work. The tragedy is that they represent such work made scarce. And in part, the blame falls on the corporate elite, which demands ever more bankers and lawyers on the one hand and low-paid helots on the other, and few, if any, poets, astronomers, or givers of care. No one has such expectations of a mere job, and it is this, as much as anything, which defines the middle-class advantage over the working-class majority. The working-class must work often at uncomfortable or repetitive tasks for money and find its pleasure elsewhere. Only in the middle class and among the working rich is pleasure in work regarded more or less as a right. Even within the more rewarding professions, the traditional perquisites, autonomy, creativity, and service are easily traded off in favor of greater income. And the more we abandon the ethos of professionalism and its secret pleasure principle, the more we are dependent on the commodified pleasures of the market. The would-be regional planner turned corporate lawyer, the would-be social worker turned banker, must compensate for abandoned dreams with spending. The costs of heightened consumption demand still longer hours of empty labor, which must in turn be compensated with more consumption, hence the addictive frenzy of the yuppie strategy. The barriers erected to exclude intruders from other classes also stand in the way of the youth of the middle class. The barriers ensure that only the hardworking, the self-denying will make it, and not even all of them. Hence the fear of hedonism, of growing soft and ultimately falling. Hard work and self-denial become our punitive values, setting us against all those who have not yet made it, the young, the poor, and even against our own desires. But if we start with what needs to be done, we can see that the middle class's anxious sense of scarcity is in no no small part self-imposed. 
There is potentially no limit to the demand for skilled, creative, and caring people. No limit to the problems to be solved, the needs to be met by human craft and agency. The mentality of scarcity may be appropriate to the realm of consumer goods, for the obvious reasons of fairness and ecology, but it has no place in the realm of conscious, responsible effort and achievement. In an egalitarian future, there would be enough work to go around and work pleasurable enough so that all will want it. This is not a matter of lowering standards, but of opening doors. For growing numbers of people of all backgrounds, the path of self-indulgence would lead straight on from the pleasure of leaning to the joy of chosen work. And at the point where education becomes the free exercise of mind, it would inevitably cease to be the mechanism of class reproduction. Hmm. It would be too exuberant, too playful to remain in quiet service to social inequality. Everyone would want it. The barriers erected to keep out the others would tumble, and the hungry of all ages would swarm in. And this, very simply, should be the program of the professional middle class and the agenda it brings to any broader movement for equality and social justice. To expand the class, welcoming everyone until there remains no other class. Oh, you know, when we started this series, I was so hell-bent on just cracking jokes and reaffirming my own financial and political biases. And for a while, that's what it was. Mm. Because you keep presenting me examples of of people acting like idiots. And that's the one thing I'm going to turn my attention to. Right. And I do that because it's not so much that it's Aaron Reich's anecdotes and these are one-off instances and here's how we can learn from them. It's the fact that they are these attitudes and habits and people and stereotypes are still pervasive today. Yeah. And they will be. And for the rich, they need to be because it's a class divide that to them is necessary. Right. And it all stems back from the haves and the have nots, or I think point the way how I've interpreted it as is people that just get it and people that don't. I don't really consider myself changed having finished this book in my own personal beliefs in mm. that regard, as I do believe that while these observations, very keen and astute as they are, how do we fix the problem? Well, mm. there's your long-winded answer in a chapter right there. Is that going to be put into practice? No, I don't think so. And I'm not sure if I asked this question at the end of the last episode or perhaps at the beginning of this episode of are we going to see it in our lifetime? I don't think so. And it's sort of a sad observation. You know, I didn't, in all my time sort of consuming media, where in me watching a movie or me playing a video game, and when you get to the when you get to the final chapter and you realize, oh, here, here's the boogeyman all along. Right. It's one thing, you know, to spend as much time 
playing vicariously through a protagonist and and basically being like, okay, there's the threat. By all intents and purposes, if the movie or the video game ends in the way that I'm anticipating it to, good will triumph over evil. And in this, the problem is outlined, the villain is identified, and the protagonist has gone on his or her long journey in order to either mitigate said risks to be affected. But I don't think there really is a solution. And it's mm. sort of a sad thing to say. You know, I, I've i spent the better half of my life ever since giving up being a publisher, preparing myself for the future because... I spent the better half of seven years in that career field. And even now, I, even now I'm lying to myself. It wasn't a career field. It was a, it was a hobby, you know, it wasn't professional whatsoever. It was self-proclaimed vanity that I misappropriated as professional because I felt that it had some, merit existing in otherwise communications journalism or authorial work and it didn't i gave it up because i fell into that line of thinking where i spent the better half of seven years wasting my time how do i become more professional so that i you know by definition as my elders have taught me set myself up for success and hence why I've gone down a number of career paths that I absolutely despise wholeheartedly. Mm -hmm. The fundamentals are just not, they're not clicking with me. I understand the significance of them. I understand why they're important. But yeah. on a personal level, you put a gun to my head. I can't say that they're interesting in any way. The only right. part that I find interesting and worth having a conversation about on the subject of personal finance is ad hominem straw men jokes because I consider it to be sort of a sarcastic observation. You have generations and generations of people who don't know how to spend their money. And some days I feel as though, you know, Oh, I'm not, I'm the young hot shot who thinks that they can do it better on one hand. And on the other hand, you know, systematically teach others so that incidents like these don't happen again how do you get people to listen i should ask and how do you get people to listen outside of standard judicature and legislation practices do you approach it from a more violent standpoint do you essentially threaten them with better habits do you shame and mock them do you have a more appropriate redistribution what do you do do you cut them from the conversation entirely you know i sort of find myself going down this spiral of how do you help those who are disenfranchised right and it oftentimes has me going to the conclusion of how do you subvert the disingenuous the ones who have propagated this system to begin with. Yeah. How do you go about uprooting an entire financial system or an entire socio-political system built 
on the foundation of a generation that we weren't alive for, but will very much outlive. How do we go about and and fixing this? Mm-hmm. You know, <clears throat> how do you go about asking what substitute for capital is there in ensuring a job compensatory to skill level and salaries compensatory to that position? I find myself not even answering my own questions aside from just the militant black pill approach of disregard anyone who 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 has an opinion that is not forthcoming and other war and otherwise thought provoking. But then again, I, I don't want to sound, you know, at risk of overtly fascistic. Okay. That's not who I want to be. Yeah, you, you you don't you don't ever want to reach the point where you sound, even though uh, even though as, I will say even yeah. though I will say that by all intents and purposes would that work? And... Well, let's let's not forget too that fascism by its very nature masquerades as socialism, but then ultimately reveals itself as parading for <laughs> capitalist interest at the end of, of the day. Of course. Since the beginning, I have always, since the beginning of the series, I've sort of pushed along this narrative of how do we embody the tenets of self-sufficiency and self-actualization in regards to responsibility? How do we prevent the dumb from getting dumber (laughs) and those who are willing to change adopt the new behaviors that uh, are indicative of the time that we live in? i.e. just because you're making more money do you necessarily have to spend it of course you know my stance on that but it's been well documented my dear how do we how do you show a practice of independent financial i don't even want to say conservatism but just independent financial Frugality, uh, responsibility. Yeah. How do you instill this in a generation that otherwise wants nothing to do with it? And I ask that because in adopting these habits, I know that it can be changed for the better. And I know that people aren't vilifyingly do that. I know they're not going against the grain to outright tank the economy. I'd hope not anyway. Mm -hmm. But... You know, how do we instill these beliefs? Once again, is it a matter of threat? Is it a matter of humor? <laughs> is it a matter of, you know, fad and ridicule? Or is it, is it a matter of legislation? And at that point, I would hope, I would pray that it's not the latter. Because I would also like to hope and pray that anyone who wants to have any financial control and subsequent political leanings is not going to depend on the government to spoon feed their answers for them. Right. Yeah. I would like to believe that individuals smart enough to make a living would be smart enough to live accordingly to that living. And I don't think I'm asking too much. You know, I've often said, Oh, maybe I'm asking too much at the end of this book. Come to, you know, come to find out, I don't think I was asking too much all along. You know, I don't think it's very, I don't think it's difficult for people to not adopt 
bad behaviors. Right. I don't think it's necessarily, you know, privileged of me to say that when there is more of a wealth of information and historical background, as well as historical significance of what not to do in order to come to the conclusion to not make those bad decisions. Yep. But people still out, outright do so for the sole reason of, of capital, and it makes me wonder to what end? Like, to what end? To, to, to what? Money? And for what? To exacerbate bad behaviors? Why do I need a celebrity posing as a politician telling me how to sway my vote? Mm -hmm. Why do I need certain foods telling me how, how to, to shape my body? You know, now granted, there is a healthy and an unhealthy way to do it. It's it's as apparent as black and white. And anyone who disagrees or is is so ingrained in certain subsets, I'm not saying it as a whole general thing, in certain subsets of the body positivity movement, it becomes a bit of a toxic place to be where bad behaviors are rewarded. And more or less praised. And I don't know. I don't know. I, I'd advise people to either take a look at a balance sheet, take a look at a medical report, take a look at poll numbers, and actually understand what's at stake. Mm -hmm. Because as history has dictated, people don't. And if... <laughs> And if it didn't, if history didn't dictate itself in the last, I want to say, three to eight years that we've been encompassed with this presidency, maybe things would have been different. Mm -hmm. That's all I have to say. I just. Uh... God, I hope it gets better. Well, I think looking back on this whole adventure that we've been on. And looking back on all that Barbara proposed, all that she laid out in terms of understanding what the professional managerial slash middle class is, represents, um, it, it remains the exact same thing now as it you, did in 1989 prior. Can I ask a question? Of course, of course. Similar to my... <clears throat> financial advisor question right where if adopting astute financial and personal responsibility why would you ever need a financial advisor if you are so ingrained in what you believe in morals practices ways of life what have you and you don't let finances dictate your uh, dictate your politics and thus dictate your class status as a result mm -hmm. would there even be a need for social classes at all if everyone can live independently outside of those labels well it begs the question of do those class positions or cl does class status exist at all to begin with I'm saying even if it did does it need to if everyone were confident and content in their roles in society mm -hmm. and this isn't taking into account you know 
mobility, because for my example, it doesn't exist. The only mobility you would have is job mobility. If you didn't happen to find a position fulfilling, you could always go to another one. Of course, this would also uh, include the example of, hey, let's give everyone a decent wage. Um, or, or, Or essentially make the position compensatory to what you expect, and thus allow individuals to seek leisure and fulfillment in the way that they want to. I.e., I don't mind having a smaller house than you, Mancini, because it's how I choose to live. Whether or not you choose to invest in a bigger house to suit your needs or just whatever is is frankly none of my business. Mm. Now, I realize that that may sound a little bit tone deaf because why should someone who has a smaller house look at someone who has a bigger house and basically think to themselves, well, why shouldn't I expect more? That's not my question. My question is, if you are fully content and aware of where you are in the universe and thus don't need to feel as though you need to prove yourself to others financially, politically, or classic elite. No, that's not the word. (laughs) Class structurally. Right. Would there even be a need for social classes? Well, is that being asked to the individual, or is that being asked just in general of the way things are? Broader scale. Doesn't mind if you're a pauper, you're a prince, you're a banker, you're a butcher. It's it's a matter of seeking fulfillment in your life as where you are now in your job, regardless of any protected category, and looking to the outside where the grass is greener and thinking to yourself, now the grass might be greener. But I like it here, and I'm going to continue doing what I love, simply out of my love for doing it. Not materialism, not not Jonesism, keeping up with the Joneses, not for sake of vicarious living through children or other means. Yeah. No. No. Of course, it's impossible. What I'm proposing is, is impossible because... I would venture to guess that someone would hear what I'm saying and say, oh, well, that's just Marxist by default. Look, I'm not mm. calling. I'm not calling for the eradication of social classes. That's the difference. I'm asking for people to find in it in themselves what's important. Because everything that was outlined in Aaron Reich's book is not important. And she labeled it as not important because at the very end, the whole eradication of social classes by seeking things that are fulfillment to you is the point, is the next step of achieving that solution. The problem is it's not going to happen. So we're left with two questions here, I think. Okay. The end. One, do we believe that that can work? And two, in the hypothetical scenario that the rich as a class and its subsequent i want to say i want to say do goodings but they're not do goodings at all activities should we say are effectively wiped there's no 1% influence that could possibly uh play a role in finding this sense of personal fulfillment mhm do you think that the former can be achieved. She dictates that, okay, if, if there's going to be class war of any kind, 
what is the role of the middle class? What role does it play in terms of how the proletariat fight against the elite, the bourgeoisie, whatever you want to call it, and lays out literally in the last paragraph that, okay, if the middle class has a role in, in this class war, it is quite simply take the side of the victim, take the side of those that are the most put down, the most uh, pretty much left to the wayside, and use them as your ally in winning. And obviously there, there's a lot of questions in terms of what does that mean for the new world post-class war. There's a lot in terms of well, what does it mean in terms of like negotiating who gets what, who's in control of what, how does this new system work, etc. But you have to start somewhere in terms of, okay, what does this mean in terms of an actual revolution of sorts against the people you're fighting against? And it does start with having that sense of solidarity with those that you do, that you are on equal footing with. You have to at least have the humility to accept yourself as being on equal footing with said people that you are on equal footing with. Case in point, anyone middle class and you consider yourself professional middle class you're considering yourself better than them however the elite consider you exactly. equal to them so you know what do you do in that situation where you think you're better but your betters that you think you're equal to think you're less than they are okay exactly. so, so i turn around and basically say you know what you're right i am less than you but guess what i got people yeah, I'm greater than. Mm -hmm. Right. I'm greater. Well, I'm greater than in this from the standpoint of I have I I have the people that mat arguably matter most to our society's backbone by my side, and it doesn't matter if it's you know the middle class that works in classrooms, if it's the middle class that works in journalism, it could quite literally be I'm a teacher. Therefore, I'm in a situation where I'm just about as I, I'm treated like as if I'm working in a kitchen at a restaurant, but I am treated and or rather I'm educated as if I was part of your class. So therefore, what do you do with me? Well, if I'm PMC, I bring them on my side because at the end of the day, teachers aren't are not treated like they're yuppies. They're not treated like they're bootlickers for Elon Musk. So obviously what comes after that is a matter of political argument and debate, the likes of which we simply don't have in our country today. Um, we certainly have it in terms of presidential campaigns, the likes of which we've had since at least 2015. And at least as of 2023, we probably will not have ever again unless we have another candidate who's out an outright socialist like Bernie mm -hmm. Sanders. But yeah, I mean, that's that's basically where we go from there. It, it, it's, it's harder. It's much harder to dictate where we go from there in terms of actual progress and growth simply because it's conversations that are li quite literally, even though it's an eight year long discussion, they are still, for the most part, just being discussed. So it, it's a lot harder to give an answer that doesn't sound idealized. Um, now, I do have to throw back at you in terms of this book. 
does it, if anything, give you both a sharper idea in terms of why we're at where we're at, in terms of why people behave the way they do, people that think of themselves as rich and elite and mm -hmm. amazing and wonderful and like, Elon, Elon, but also give, me... yeah. uh, give you a sense of, okay, what do we do to actually combat these folks? And what do we um... do to actually stand up to them and say, actually, the rest of us have an opinion and it is this. The first part, the first question, yes, of course. The second question, I once again have to tune in my uh, my bias in discussing these individuals, the you know the anecdotes interspersed throughout the book. Yeah, with uh, does it give me a sense a sensible solution? You said, or like what to do? Right. No, because for the better half of six chapters, all I've done was regaled ad nauseum of how these, how these human examples are just not up to par with what they should be doing. And, you know, again, I'm not expecting Rome to be built in the day here. I'm not expecting these episodes to go out and completely shatter the economic mold of, of our country's backbone. But at the same time, too, I also think that in the air of discussing finances, which is a topic that people outright do not want to discuss, I'm very much of the mindset of, why? Yeah. Point blank. Oh, well, it's personal. When it starts to be implemented at the government level, Guy, it's not anymore. And it becomes a collective consciousness. And you have people... Liberals and conservatives wondering where the money goes, okay? So I'm sorry to say, but in the air of finances, of which it does devolve to it being personal and thus fueled back into the economy that we hold so dear, I think it is a practice that should be established. I think it is a practice to call out individuals with bad spending habits, or at the very least, habits that go up to the highest levels of government. And behaviors that are better left to a cycle to, to psychological evaluation. Because as much as I believe that I believe medic I believe doctors have to go undergo psychological evaluations to go in their positions, lawyers as well. Why not finance experts? Experts in quotes. I've always been of the belief that yes, you work for money, you earn money. And that money can be spent however you like. It doesn't mean that every purchase is going to be a good one. And I'd go so far as to say that the majority of purchases made this way, you know, through through grueling work, the, the grueling work week, the backbone of our American capitalist society or whatever you want to say. Mm -hmm. Wages compensatory with job, you know, with, with skill sets. That's again, we've discussed ad nauseum about how that could be fixed. Or potentially no. fixed, or how it needs to be fixed, but when you're, but when the money is actually sitting in front of you, how come there's not a discussion about how it should be spent? I mean, does it sound too dictatorial? Do I sound too much like a hard ass when I tell people how to spend their money, even though I think deep down people should be spending their money in perhaps more positive, progressive 
maybe self-sufficient ways, maybe adopt better spending habits. Right. Like, is that so bad of me to declare? And personally, I say no. However, others may view it differently as stating, well, again, the, the see lazy option, that's none of your business. Well, it's none of my business up to a point. Yeah. Because I believe that these behaviors, they aren't learned but taught. Or if they are learned, I mean, shit, you're, you're already setting yourself up for failure there. Okay. You can't look at me and tell me that, that these behaviors are positive. Because I'm going to call you a liar. And I'm going to say outright that it needs to be changed. And whether it means having those uncomfortable conversations, I guess we're going to have them. We've already had these uncomfortable conversations about race, gender, and orientation, among others. Why shouldn't this be a part of it? That's all I ask. You know, when the opinion of one is not only practiced, but justified to be the opinion of many, it's dangerous. It allows for the ironclad model of the individual working 40 hours a week for 40 years to be, you know, passed down to his or her next of kin. It allows that to be completely fucked when you realize what's standing in one's way. Yeah. In order to not only, you know, on the surface level, just a transfer of assets, but really just like a transfer of good behavior. I don't know. I, I really can only look at this, you know, independently. I can only live my life having read the, having read what we read and essentially get it in my head more so as confirmation bias that don't be stupid, Sebastian, and hope that others don't do the same because they're not inheriting the earth. We are, okay? Like they're not inheriting the... the the global economic system. You know, they've had their day in the sun. And what's next? Well, we're going to have to be the ones to answer that question. But so far, what they've left us is a puzzle that doesn't have every piece to it. Right. And you know that I've used this expression on Mars on Life multiple times. Oh, yeah. A puzzle is something you have all the answers to. And by putting the pieces together, you understand how it fits. And therein lies the satisfaction. If you're missing a couple pieces, how do you get to a conclusion? I can really only hope that through reading this book and through vocalizing our thoughts and our jokes that and our commentary that we've done a commentative service that can hopefully instill some line of thought outside of what's potentially advertised to you as being the good thing to do or the right thing to do. And yeah, maybe the conclusion that it, that it wasn't all along, who knows if you have any final thoughts, please. Um, all I can do is remain hopeful and just hope that people make the right decision. But I know that it's a fool's bet because there will be people profiting off the fact that people end up making the wrong decisions and sometimes even exacerbating why people should make the wrong decisions i digress believe it or not i don't have too much else to add because i think listeners can guess based on 
what a lot of my views represent and based on a lot of what I've already said, both in terms of this mini-series, but also just in general, they can probably understand where I stand on all matters addressed in Fear of Falling, um, given the fact that this is a book that I've promoted and recommended and, you know, I, I wholeheartedly think people should read it despite its controversy, because it's controversy... I'll just briefly address, because um, I do have sort of two two questions for you in, in regards to it, in regards to the book that I'll bring up. But in terms of the controversy around the book and, you know, oh, does a PMC exist? Um, does it have a role in society, etc.? I th certainly think it does exist, number one. Mm -hmm. But also, I do think that especially in America today where we're asking ourselves how exactly do we um, how exactly do we allow ourselves to have a class of people that can help dictate what conversations are in terms of class especially when they come from an upper class um, regardless if it's upper class or middle class if we can have somebody who thinks of themselves as elite should they be allowed in the conversation? And I think that, for one thing, it isn't so much as assuming these people think of themselves as elite. It's more like, okay, you have people that are educated to the point where they understand the situation and they can help. Yes, you can have somebody that's working class that is exactly the same kind of person, but if you're going for class solidarity, for goodness sake, why don't you allow more people into the conversation if somebody thinks of themselves as PMC but they want to actually help don't exclude them you know if they're a journalist if they're an academic don't say oh well you're not working class so therefore why bother no don't think that because at the end of the day this is a struggle that we are all in we are all in it and it is something that does not care if you're black or white, or brown, or poor, or rich, or whatever. It is a struggle that is going to affect everyone, and the only opposition, quite literally, even though I just said the rich, there's the fabricated rich, and there's the actual rich, it is quite literally against the actual rich. And so, um, simply put, this book is the guidebook for all of those that think, oh, well, you know, I'm in this position, therefore... I'm uh, cured of any fret or worry of being brought down and being considered less than based on my position. Believe me, honey, speaking as somebody with a journalism background, you are, you very well could be considered less than regardless of your background. Because even within journalism, there is that consideration that you are less than. I mean, for goodness sake, and I've said this a thousand times before. You do not even need to have a journalism education to be in journalism. You know, you can just have it as a profession and therefore you could be considered less than. But I bring back to the two questions that I would ask you, which is, um, or which are, do you think this is a book that um, should be read across the board? Do you think this is something that people should pick up in terms of understanding the differences in class, but also understanding why class 
difference is kind of a is kind of ridiculous and and that people should just go based on shared experience rather than class status in terms of your own view on how things should go in terms of just class dynamics class warfare etc do you think this was a worthwhile read the first question you're asking me a across the board should this be a book anyone regardless of social class they should be able to read right yeah yeah sure will all social classes understand it and grasp it at the same level as each other of course not and i ask that from the standpoint of the uber elite why should they care capital is the name of the game okay and if anyone has built their fortune on said capital mm -hmm. it is built off of the misappropriation and the outright tumultuous business practices that exist in today's world yeah it's not to call out individual names or individual companies or what have you but it's safe to say how we have viewed business acumen in 2023 in relation to politics there's a bit of a below board scale that we've that we've experienced as the middle class mm -hmm. you know as someone who has an outward perspective and going back to my whole justification argument why would they seek the need to change Sure, they can pick this. They can pick this book up and understand what it means to maybe be the quote unquote the winners. You know, ha oh, he who gets the be the most capital wins, kind of thing. Yeah, and maybe have some off colored comment about how oh anyone can make it if they just try hard enough. How many times have I fucking heard that? And how maybe class structure is just illusory and that uh, I hate to go back to the main point, but I, I hear every boomer and their mother say this. Well, anyone can do it with enough hard work and business acumen. Right. Little do they know the actual struggles of someone who is from a disenfranchised group. Again, protected categories outside of one's own control. It's the blatant tone deafness that needs to be eradicated from this earth what else do you want me to say it's a bad half-cocked opinion that is is taught you know i i i think people growing up in the decades that they do yes are products of their environment were they good environments absolutely not so eh, as causation dictates I don't think those products are really any better either. It's not to outright obliterate an entire generation of individuals, but I think that a lot of decades spent post-wartime were years spent indulging in vices that had nothing to do with who they were in re regard to their fellow man. It was all about me, me, me. Yeah. Yeah, And while I just touted personal responsibility a moment ago, I have to double down when I say, when has personal responsibility ever been labeled as a bad thing? Now, your second question. What was it again? Sorry. Uh, sorry, now I'm trying to remember. Shit. Uh, <laughs> would, I, would I recommend 
Yes. I, okay. Yeah. Like, like, would you recommend this from the standpoint of somebody that's read it, but also from the standpoint of someone who is in the middle class? You could say that, it. but also yeah. as somebody that looks at it as has worked that in the professional a... middle class, has seen both sides of the argument. I mean, I, yeah. I, again, I hate interrupting you, but like, if you're trying to ask me for a recommendation from the standpoint of either having experienced it, maybe having, I don't know, vicariously lived through it by, by either my peers or my coworkers or what have you. Mm -hmm. Yes, it is. It does come with a recommendation for someone who understandably wants to get into the tenacious underbelly, underbelly of how things are operated you're not going to like what you have to read. I certainly didn't, but I felt like the conversations and the dialogue and the jokes cracked were necessary at calling attention to what is otherwise an unequitable playing field. Am I calling to level the playing field when I say that? I think, my, I think the bigger question is, is that even possible? Yeah, it's pretty black-pilled when I ask that, but hey... At least I'm not catering well, to the demands of the uber rich or, you know, pr proposing a half-cocked solution to the poor that could very well benefit from it. But then again, th there is simply no answer because uh, what playing field? Oh, you mean the you mean the no man's land that we're forced to navigate? Okay. Yeah, great. But anyways, it does come with a stark recommendation for... Uh, opinionated contrarian readers such as myself mm -hmm. it definitely calls into questions the practices of some of, of most americans with vices and with those who want to play keeping up with the joneses yeah i feel it lends an ear into those who are disenfranchised and who really don't have the literary know-how or the communicative edge to stand on in order to ask these types of questions. And I feel like Aaron Reich does a terrific job in doing so for the time. And I say oh, yeah. for the time because 30 to 40 years later, it's still existing. Yep. So can I say that this book is timeless? Uh, well, when we get to season 50 of Mars on Life, and we're well into our retirement pensions, and you decide to dust off this old audio archive and say, hey, for old time's sake, you want to you read Aaron Reich as I'm sitting in my two-bedroom house in the middle of bumfuck nowhere. I've gone homestead. I don't know. I'll say, sure, why not? Let's, let's go from where we left off, which is to mid to late 20 somethings wondering why the world is the way it is around us but for the time being in 2023 yes i very much recommend it to those willing to read and willing to actually grasp the subtext yeah both of which i think the uh, uber elite uh, are unwilling to do because why would they why justifiably would they well i think the short answer to that is because I believe me, I, I, I look at this book and think, why wouldn't somebody like, for example, one of my parents read it and like it? And mm -hmm. I think the short answer simply is, well, they'll read it and then they'll immediately get the gist at, I mean, well, 
they'll immediately get it at some point in the reading where Aaron Reich is coming from and therefore think, okay, well, this is clearly some kind of left-wing viewpoint on quite literally X, Y, and Z. That's how my parents think. And so therefore, okay, so they're, she's going for something that's basically akin to a more socialist, communist viewpoint. But I think at the same time, it it demands that you think broader than that because... Yes, she is coming at this from, and you know, I said this in the very beginning, she is coming at this from a very biased point of view and certainly from a very politicized point of view based on how she, on how she thought things should be. At the same time, you can't ignore the arguments that she makes. You can't ignore the scholarship that she's put into this, you can't, the research she's put into this, and you can't act like as though it doesn't exist. So to just push this aside and say, oh, well, it's just more, it, it's just socialism. Oh, you know, it's nothing to bat an eye at. It's like, well, hold on, hold on, actually read it, understand it, and think about it. And then, you know, you can obviously come to your own conclusion. But at the same time, believe you me, there's other people that are very apolitical that are not of the same political view as Barbara Ehrenreich that I shit you not will come up with the exact same, maybe not solutions, but certainly at the exact same uh, scholarship that proves the exact same point. It's hard to say it's politicized when it quite literally is just presenting the facts as they are, as they were. Mm -hmm. The question is, do you think yeah. these things should continue and should continue to the point where they're continuing to allow how our society is currently dictated obviously yeah. from the standpoint of well right, right. everything feels the same maybe don't but at the same time you can improve upon what she has to offer now i did have another question uh one other final question i was going to ask basically mm -hmm. do you think that this is something that uh i'm trying to i'm trying to remember if i can get it properly otherwise don't worry Listeners, there's more episodes to come, um, even though <laughs> we're done with this book. But do you think that based on the reading, based on everything we've talked about, do you think it is something that should be more widely recognized and as well as, as widely recognized should also be something that is integrated to the point where people can have a better understanding on why things are the way they are? And obviously... I could hear people make the same argument about the works of Marx or, you know, if you want to expand to like, I don't know, architecture and say, apply that with our alma mater. I could see somebody say, oh, this is why you got to read City of Quartz. Um, but in terms of this, you know, for people that want to understand, okay, how do we get out of the rut that we're in? Um, and I do realize there was an actual final question that I will get to after this. Um, but basically, do you see this as something that should be recommended reading for people that people in education, people in higher education specifically, should they read this book? Yes, I would go so far as to say that it serves more of a cautionary tale, if anything, of, you know, Randall Graves, does title, does title dictate behavior? More often than not, I find myself saying yes in these circumstances when really if you were the smart one 
it wouldn't. Okay. And that's sort of the thing that made me draw myself more and more into this book is that it's the reluctancy of the fact that capital should dictate politics. And to me personally, I don't think it should. Now, that's a moot point because do you see the society we're living in? However, in my idealized stupor, I've found that capital, that money says a lot about someone on an individual level. And again, not not disregarding my previous sentiments about how these individual behaviors can be elevated to the highest level of government. And thus, you are at risk for some potentially torrential things. I went through this whole book with that same mindset of, well, it can be sequestered apolitically. And thus, you know, why the butt end of my jokes were the way that they were. So does it come recommended in in the manner of which you asked it? Yes, because I do believe that it does serve as a more cautionary tale of anything, because you get to see first and foremost, historically speaking, what these consumer habits were, how advertisers would fight tooth and nail to to allow for discovery and even subsequent rediscovery of their products and services in the public consciousness solely for the fact of getting to buy. And again, probably stupid to say, why would anyone advertise if it wasn't for the sole purpose of buying said product or service? But at the same time, too, it really does make me wonder, hey, if someone is vehemently advertising chain smoking and me... From a relatively well-educated background, understanding the risks of said chain smoking, would I ever fall victim to these advertisers? No, that would be stupid. That would be silly. (laughs) That would be that would make me feel a little ashamed to quote um, a comedian who will go unnamed. (laughs) I'm very much willing to answer your final question i actually do have two more but don't worry okay. they're very all right no they're worries. very no short worries. questions go ahead oh okay so my my final two questions very short um and one of them you've kind of already answered but i'll i'll ask it regardless do you regret reading this book and do you would you could you see yourself reading more Aaron reich down the line no I don't regret reading this book because it's important to see how these concepts sink. Ideally, I wish they wouldn't have so much to do with one another. I wish that they could be interdependent, not to a point of having politics rely on capital and vice versa and how uh, you want to talk about trickle down economics. I call it trickle down bad behavior. You know, at this point, because if it's the top justifying and indicating what I need to do to live my life and to seek fulfillment, I don't consider that a good use of time and capital. Because at the end of the day, if I'm going to choose what's going to make me happy or fulfilled, what's some bigwig at the top know about me that I don't? Would I be interested in reading her other books? Of course. Next question. I mean, it, <laughs> this is the first Aaron Reich book, book I read and, you know, from start to finish. 
Uh, I would say from cover to cover, but we didn't read the acknowledgments. It's okay. Uh, I can <laughs> I consider myself <clears throat> thoroughly enjoyed uh, with what I've read. I think I've said it before. This is probably my favorite of her books, and I've now since read maybe about I think if I'm looking right at my bookshelf, uh, six of her books. Of those six, this is the most scholarly of the bunch. The rest of them vary from uh, satirical journalism to autobiography. I do know that the next book that I would love for you to read of hers ventures more in the autobiography section than this does, but it certainly does fit into the mold of what this book not only offers, but also what it foresees in terms of the proletari proletarianization of the middle class. Um, mm -hmm. That book being Bait and Switched. You ask me, of course I'm going to recommend uh, mm -hmm. books by Aaron Reich. Um, right. I, I certainly think she was one of the best minds of the 20th century. I do think it was a real shame to lose her and you know, shortly afterward, Mike Davis in very quick succession last year, both left a, a tremendous body, both left tremendous bodies of work that I think need to be looked at and analyzed and read for in, in perpetuity, just because of what they have to say about the world that we live in, but also the stakes in which society was in back in the day compared with now and how the exact same ailments that afflicted the world we lived in back in 1989 um 1990 when city of courts came out you know 2000 2001 ish when nickel and dimed came out like all these things that both of them wrote about you'd think two decades after three decades after a bunch of these books came out that we'd have our shit together and we'd actually be like okay maybe we should actually respond to these ailments in our society no we haven't why but but then again you know again looking from the perspective of the elite why should we why would right. we mm -hmm. you know the disenfranchisement is what makes this country run unfortunately yep and i'd hate to say it but if we were of the culture of the elite and reading this book and inundated with why these practices and this acumen is okay. And we had it in our minds justified from a very young age. I'm starting to believe that this would be a very different podcast. I'm starting to believe that this would be a very different review of the book. As yeah. I've said, people are products of their environment. And if their environment isn't good, I suspect that the products aren't going to be any better. I mean, that, that's a less heavy handed approach to the uh, uh, to the Prager U sentiment of is every culture good? No. Or are some cultures better than others? Yes. Or so something to that effect. I'm not going to go down that path, but I will say that, again, cause effect. Well, listeners, ah, oh, this has been the, uh, the conclusion, at the very least, of this iteration of the Falling Middle cast. We're done. Well, let's just say we're, we're done with this book. There's one other book by Aaron Reich that I feel like is a perfect, even though... But, but my question is, can we publish these episodes now and release them? Oh, yeah. Okay, then that's fine. Yeah. 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 
for now, though, I think we can take a long deserving break. Definitely. And yeah, <laughs> uh, Barbara, thank you very much for allowing us to pick this apart and come to conclusions that were very much duly needed, whether or not they needed to be recorded and uh, televised to such a degree. I suppose we've yet to find out, but I, I can safely say for my own personal fulfillment, I've come out a different person having read this as opposed to simply saying no to this idea altogether. So for now, this has been this current iteration of the falling middle cast. Stay tuned. And if anything, thank you all so much for listening. Uh, in the, in the words of, uh, Mike Davis struggle. Thank you for listening to The Falling Middle Cast. Our co-hosts are Ryan Mancini and Sebastian Shug. Episodes are produced by Ryan Mancini and feature music by Kevin McLeod. Check out our main series, Mars on Life, or listen to our other spinoff, Diet NIMBY, wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.